The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. You people, you know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective. Play. Go at it live on WCW Monday Nitro, where the big boys play every Monday night at 8 on TNT. Hello and welcome to Nitro Nights, a WCW Look Back podcast. My name is Sai, and joining me as always is the wrestling encyclopedia himself, Scottish Danny. Danny! It's pay-per-view day, my friend. It's a big one today, sir. We're watching Super Brawl 1996. We are indeed. We are indeed. Super Brawl 96 or Super Brawl 6, however you want to word it, uh, initially broadcast on pay-per-view on the 11th of February 1996. So the day before my 15th birthday, that would have been, from the Bayfront Arena in St. Petersburg, Florida. There was around 7,000 and change in attendance, which is about 6,000 down from the previous year. And strangely, about 6,000 down from the following year. Maybe that was something to do with the size arena they were running. Well, I, I'm not 100% sure. Our main event, or double main event, I guess, is a double cage match, as we're told. But it's not quite the double cage match with regards to a war games that, you know, you say double cage, that's the visual. It just means that there's two cage matches on the show. We just uh, will discuss a bit later on. I want to get your thoughts on that aspect of the show, Danny, but uh, we'll, we'll start where we should do and where we always do at the very beginning, quite a eighties feeling to the start of this pay-per-view with the graphics and the music and the intro. What did you think? Yeah, I thought the same thing. It was like it didn't feel like it was in tune with 1996 because uh, maybe it was just like a like I did notice some audio issues or something. Maybe it wasn't preserved very well, but it, it felt like worlds away from the Nitro we previously watched last week. Yeah, and I've, I've, there's a lot of aspects to that. I think the, the beginning, it felt the music being played behind the graphics that were showing the matches on the card, which is interesting as well, because to me, this is the first time we've got the full card in front of us when you actually, in theory, would have paid for the pay-per-view already. But um, <laughs> we get the, the graphics of running through the card, the matches that we're going to have this evening. The music playing behind it gave me very strong 1980s Jim Crockett Promotions vibes with that kind of 80s generic TV background music. Uh, we have Dusty Rhodes... Bobby Heenan and Tony Schiavone on commentary for the pay-per-view again, which tends to be their go-to 
pay-per-view team, it seems. Uh, I quite like the mix of these three, and I think all three on this show did a really good job. How did you find the commentary and, and the, the presentation from that aspect in general? I really enjoyed it, but I do wish we got to see Pepe at least. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot about Pepe. Yeah, what a shame. I wonder what he'd have been dressed as this week. I wish, yeah. But um, other than that, yeah, I like the dynamic between, between these three as well, um, especially with Tony being the lead, because going forward, he's going to be the lead, isn't he, in the coming years? Yes, yes, very true, very true. Our first match then is a, well, it's billed as a tag team contest, but there isn't, I don't think, any tagging involved. (laughs) We have the team of Public Enemy, and they are facing the Nasty Boys in a street fight. And I I think this is, I reckon this is a good way of getting a pay-per-view off to a start. It's exciting. There's a lot going on. It's pretty chaotic. Um, I mean, there's a few a few spots that we're going to touch upon, I guess. But overall, how did you how did you find this particular contest? It had a very ECW esque feel to it, I think. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Is like um, this was just chaotic. It was to me this was much better than the Clash of the Champions match. Um, this went a bit longer as well. I noticed, um, and just there was a lot of bloody uh, chair shots, weren't there? Yeah, it's. <sighs> This match, I think, is very much a case of what was exciting about, I suppose, that hardcore style, that uh, hardcore, extreme, ECW-esque style, that you would get the odd match here and there on a WCW show at the time. I suppose copying the blueprint from, but it's a very loose blueprint, very loose format, because you get big spots so there's there's a pile driver by by jerry sags on the trash can at one stage you have a few table spots as well and then a lot of chair shots and so on but there's no real structure to what you're seeing there's no there's no story being told it's just four big blokes beating the shit out of each other i guess before we get to the finish so whereas i can understand how it can be quite exciting and the crowd get up off their seats and get them fired up for the start of the show if the whole pay-per-view was like this, it'd be too much. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. Um, one thing I wrote about this is, like, I just didn't like how the Nasty Boys d- didn't seem to tend to sell. Um, a lot of the times, they just got up uh, very, very quickly. I don't know if you noticed that, side. Yeah, I think both teams were, were guilty of this to a degree. And that kind of leans into what I, what I was getting at with regards to there being no major sort of structure it felt like at times there was no moments for, for for us as the viewer to react to what we were seeing on screen because you'd see one chair shot and then you'd see somebody else get hit of a bit of a table, somebody else get hit of a trash can. And it just seemed to constantly be bang, 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 bang all the way through. And again, no real sort of moments to stop and pause and take in the, the, the carnage and so on. We do get the WCW split screen, however. As the as the wrestlers as as the teams kind of pair off and go in their different directions, fighting with respective opponents, I think the idea of this is very very good, but the execution is maybe slightly off. How how did you find trying to watch the the two screens and and the two I suppose separate separate fights at, at once? It goes back to when we was uh, discussing um, World War Three. Uh, to me, this was just a bit too much, um, especially with the amount of brawling and things like that. I could, I like a split screen, but it has to be one, 
one has to have chaos and one maybe a backstage interview or something like that. But I, I just this I found this a bit too much. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's I think the intention was correct because you don't want to be watching, say, Jerry Sags and Rocco Rock, and then something's happening on the other side of the ring that you miss. So I appreciate that aspect, but it was a little bit. <sighs> Again, heart heart in the right place, head maybe not, potentially, I guess, is a way of looking yeah. at it. But it could have been, at least it wasn't free. Uh, yes, yeah, that World War Three pay-per-view, that, that gave me a headache trying to focus on all that at once. But uh, <laughs> uh, we get brawling with the table very, very early. Uh, Rocker Rock goes through the table again very early. We have uh, fighting out towards a an obviously fake concession stand. I mean, let's be honest, it's... it's I appreciate again the effort they've made for it not to just be a table randomly placed there. They've tried to make it look like a concession stand, a merch stand. But two things: one, this particular merch stand is the wrestler's side of the crowd barrier, so nobody would have been able to get to it to buy a bloody t-shirt. And two, even if they could get to it, there was no stock. There was no, there was nothing there. There was just a couple of t-shirts hung up behind and prices, and that was it. So they wouldn't have sold anything if anyone would have got there, Danny. A fraudulent uh, gimmick table. You never say, sir. You never say. <laughs> uh, we come to the end when Rocco Rock attempts a sort, a sort of swanton through the table uh, from the top of, effectively almost like a crowd balcony sort of effort. And one of the nasty boys moves. He, he sails through the table, hits the concrete floor, and Brian Nobbs pins him. And that brings that match to, to an end. And it is just absolute chaos all the way through. Uh, again, it's good for what it is, but that's enough of that now. Let's move on. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I just didn't like the finish because after Sags fell through the table, he was up less than 20 seconds later, making the, the whole bump meaningless. And then they all just brought to the back anyway, don't they? Yeah. These are these are your four really tough blokes or four people who just don't want to sell for each other. I'll let yeah. people watching or listening at home make their own mind up there. We have, <laughs> uh, we have Mean Gene backstage plugging the WCW hotline once again. And he's talking here about two former WWF champions coming across. Now, my mind straight away went to Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Because that's all the obvious ones that uh, you know you think of. However, that's months away still, so I don't know who he's referring to here. Yeah, it is a bit odd. That's who I thought as well. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure Kevin Ash and Scott Hall um, were intending to stay with WWF even at this point. So I can't see it being them. Maybe it could be someone else. Mm, maybe that's something we'll have to look into for our next episode. But this 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 little backstage moment with Gene isn't just about plugging the hotline and making himself a few quid, believe it or not. We have an interview with Conan, who is not only the United States champion, he is the Mexican champion, as we are told. Conan comes in looking, I don't know, like a kind of pound stretcher version of a, of a Power Ranger. Uh, but he's got the gorgeous United States championship over his shoulder, and that title belt is amazing. He cuts a big promo uh, in in Spanish and then basically gives us a little brief summary in English and and says he's going to go out and beat the one man gang. Uh, he's you know he, the one man gang needs to worry about him and so on. Um, Conan here, I think, takes a bit of help from Gene with regards to which camera to look at, and Gene's trying to tell him to wrap it up a little bit at one stage, sort of on the sly. So again, Mean Gene, the, the ultimate professional, brilliant stuff there. Um, 
This leads us into our first title match, though, Danny. And apparently the Johnny B. Bad Diamond Dallas Page stuff is still going on. Amazing. When we first started this, uh, on one of the first pay-per-views that we started watching this, on, I think it was Fall Brawl, they had a match. And all these months later, they're still wrestling. Yeah, there's still stuff going on. I'm assuming the majority of the storyline has been dropped down to Saturday night, WWE Saturday night. But we find out effectively that Kimberly has won a lot of money playing bingo. So <laughs> she must be very fortunate. But we're talking millions of dollars. I mean, that's the sort of bingo game I want to get involved in. But yeah, she's won six odd million playing bingo. And this is the last match between Johnny B. Bad and DDP, apparently. Somehow, I think they are fibbing to us. And the TV title is up for grabs that Johnny B. Bad currently holds. But also up for grabs is the $6 million that Diamond Dallas Page has somehow stole from Kimberly. Now, the champion enters first, which I'm not a fan of. But you can kind of understand why in this aspect, because Johnny B. Bad goes through his whole shtick, the dance, the throwing the frisbees and so on. But the person I want to draw attention to here is Kimberly. She's dressed like... She could be, I don't know, a backup vocalist for, for a 1985 version of Motley Crue. And she's doing all this uh, gymnastics and cheerleading efforts. And Johnny B. Bad is a very charismatic individual. He's, he's normally quite eye-catching. He's, he's, he's normally quite entertaining. I couldn't take my eyes off Kimberly. I thought she was fantastic. She, she sort of did a funny jump over into the ropes. She was doing the splits and so on. Her whole presentation here is so different to what we first got, isn't it, Danny? It really is. It's a complete character upgrade. Um, I was very impressed with it as well. I mean, she really got into it. Um, I, I don't like the fact that she's still called the Diamond Doll. I think she may need, need a name change, Sai. What would you suggest? Oh, my goodness. I don't know. I mean, if she's associated... I mean, when Kimberly works for me. But if she <laughs> if she's associated with, with Johnny B. Bad, I, I don't know. The, the Bad Doll? No, mate, that's something terrible. No, let's move on. Well, <laughs> uh, Diamond Dallas Page comes out... With loads of roses that he wishes to give to Kimberly, which again doesn't quite work out because he stole six million dollars from her. So I don't, I don't think a bunch of flowers is going to smooth that over, Mister Page. But there we go. The match begins, and in comparison to what we've just watched, the beginning felt quite slow, and I was unsure as to whether I was going to get into this. But ultimately, I did. But at the early stages, I was a little bit like, eh, okay, not sure how this is going to fare. Uh, how, how did you, you know, uh, how did you take in this match then, Danny? How did you feel about this contest that we were presented? I thought this this should have been the opener. To be honest with, you. they should have swapped um, places with the first match because this you could get into um, a slow start, but we did get a lot of brawling and punches at the beginning as well, um, and then we got a lot of back and forth as well, didn't we? And um, it, Kimberly getting involved in this match a lot as well. I don't know if you noticed that, sir. Yeah, and she was very active on the outside as well. Again, I find it's, I don't want to say distracting in a bad way. I mean, Kimberly's obviously a very attractive lady and she's doing her job. She, she's playing to the crowd in attendance. But there were times when stuff was happening in the ring when I was drawn away. My eyes were drawn from what we were watching to see what she was doing. And she was interacting with the fans and she was trying to get them rallying behind Johnny B. Bad. And she was, she was having a go at Diamond Dallas Page at times. And I thought she's in this short period of our watch back here and the short period we have had Kimberly on our screens, her improvement is, is incredible from going from someone who just stands there rolling their eyes, wearing an evening gown to this, this ball of energy. I thought she was absolutely brilliant here. She's probably the best, the best we've seen her. 
Yeah, I mean that that makes perfect sense. It's like, yeah, that you just put it perfect. I don't know how to add to that because um, the ball of energy is a really good way of saying it because it was like I can't wait to see where where she will go next. To be honest, mm. yeah, yeah. We get an impressive uh, gut wrench into a massive sort of gut buster effort from Diamond Dallas Page. And then from that moment on, Page works Johnny B. Bad's body and ribs and so on. He's asking Kimberly to give him a 10, which is their old gimmick, of course. She actually digs out a card and gives him a zero, which I thought was quite funny. And there's a few people in the front row that enjoyed that. A decent sit-out powerbomb by Johnny B. Bad. But ultimately, Johnny B. Bad wins with a tombstone after a good a good amount of time these went on what 13 14 minutes potentially and i at one stage like i said at the beginning of the match i felt this is a bit slow then not long after that i was thinking oh this is going on a bit by the end of the match i was thinking this is bloody brilliant they really turned it around for me what what were your thoughts come the end of the contest in comparison to to when you started watching the crowd, um, they were uh, they stood out for me a lot because when uh, Bad got the pin, the crowd just popped and it was the loudest ovation of the night so far. Um, the finish, uh, we had um, DDP trying to go for a tombstone, but then he'd get reversed and then Bad hits the tombstone. It was like, it was a bit of an odd finish, but uh, it made sense as well. And I was glad that Johnny B. Bad won because we got to see more Kimberly. Yeah. That's fair enough, mate. That's fair enough. Uh, this is followed up very quickly with Harlem Heat cutting a promo backstage with our good friend Gene. And they're basically calling everyone suckers and saying how they're going to beat everybody up. And they are going to destroy Sting and Luger in their tag match. And then they're going to go on and face the Road Warriors later in the evening because the Road Warriors face the winner of our tag title match. And they're going to destroy the Road Warriors as well. And they can't wait to do it and so on and so forth. Uh, this is followed by Harlem Heat facing Sting and Luger. Now, this is, again, really an interesting dynamic for me because you've got Harlem Heat, who at this point in time are predominantly a heel team. You've got Sting and Luger, who are the champions, who in theory you want to be cheering for, especially Sting, but Luger is acting the way he's acting. But we also know the winner of this goes on and faces the Road Warriors, who are very much a babyface side, a babyface team, sorry, later on in the same evening. It's a really interesting sort of three-way dynamic with the added Lex Luger Sting business, I suppose. I also noticed no Sherry this week with Harlem Heat, you know, and it was not addressed at all, not even bought up. So that was quite interesting. Uh, Harlem Heat versus Sting and Luger. What were your thoughts on this one then, Danny? I really enjoyed this, to be honest with you. Um, I'm not going to get into the... the, um next match that follows this but this to me this was um this was harlem my favorite harlem heat match this was excellent to be honest with you i really enjoyed it um just going back to the sherry thing i noticed she was missing as well that's what i wrote down i was thinking where's sherry martell that could it be something to do with that wedding maybe she wasn't oh no she appeared on nitro after didn't she yeah her and medusa had a match didn't they yeah, yeah, that made it really odd. So this is a big pay per view. You'd think she'd be there, but maybe we can look into that side and yeah, uh, yeah, see on the next week's episode, see what happened to her. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I got a little giggle when we saw Sting and Luger coming out because they they always come out to Sting's music, and the pyro goes off and Luger jumps because of the pyro going off. It kind of startled him a bit. That that tickled me, to be fair. That was funny as well, because Lex Luger's facial expressions are excellent. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And we got a few, I suppose there's a few pointers here that we need to bring up from the pre-show of, of this pay-per-view. The first one is brought up on air by the commentary team. They're talking about the Dungeon of Doom having a surprise that was unveiled on the pre-show, and that is Loch Ness, who we will see later on, and we'll talk about that when, when he appears on screen. Uh, the other one, however, we're, we're getting told by Bobby Heenan over and over and over again, and it starts right at the beginning of this match, and it continues later on in, in, in the show, that the Road Warriors are fresh, whereas these guys are all wrestling matches. The Road Warriors wrestled earlier in the night in the dark match, just before the pay-per-view started. So they're not fresh mm-hmm. at all. So, But I understand yeah. from a TV aspect, I get that, maybe. Do you know who they faced? They wrestled and beat Dick Slater and Bunkhouse Buck in just over two minutes. Well, I suppose yeah. just over two minutes, they are potentially fresh. But <laughs> Wow, that actually sounds like a main event match anywhere in the world. I think you're being silly. And uh, <laughs> um, Luger is not keen at all to get involved, is he? And, and again, I find this era of Lex Luger, I seem to say it every week, but I find this era of Lex Luger and this kind of double-sided character he's playing so interesting because you never quite, you know he's a bit of a chicken shit heel, but he's best mates with one of the most popular guys in the company and his reactions to things and the dynamic with Sting. And this pay-per-view, I think you see it even more, even stronger than we have done on the previous Nitros. Because Lex, he's scared to get in the ring at one stage. He's not keen whatsoever. Harlem Heater in control of the match quite early on. But then Luger tags in once Sting has gained control and he's really keen to get in then. I mean, it's proper heel stuff from Luger but it works so well I think in the story they're telling Danny it does yeah it reminded me of um have you ever seen Lex Luger versus um Bruiser Brody in that cage match yes it reminded me of that where Lex Luger had genuine fear and uh tried to stay away from the match as um, as long as possible but um yeah Lex Luger he, he, you put it perfectly he, he just played his character here perfect and and then when Sting did get the advantage, he came in. But he could have been uh, smart as well, sir, because he could have been saving himself for later for the Road Warriors if his team won. Well, this is it. I think this is the kind of argument that you get with this this Luger character, and there's so many different layers to the whole situation. If you take it at a face value, and you look at it from a fan standpoint, we can see Luger as being a bit of a shit house. We can see Luger as being a bit of a a bit of a waster, a bit, a bit of a chicken shirt. He's not, he's not as into defending the championships in the honourable way as Sting is. Sting always wants to do the right thing and so on. However, if you look at it from Sting's point of view, this is his best friend who he trusts. So when Luger behaves in a certain way, and Luger tries to explain away certain things he does that we as a viewer know are not quite right, Sting will believe him because it's his best friend. You say in there, perhaps he's trying to save himself for a future contest. I can imagine that's the sort of thing Luger would tell Sting, and Sting would just sort of go, oh, okay, then, Lex, yeah, I believe you. Uh, and that sort of dynamic that they have in this weird kind of mix-match relationship, that, this sort of oddball team that, that we currently have as our tag team champions, Danny. Yeah, definitely. And because Sting is so gullible, he would definitely believe that. Oh, Sting is gullible, man. So, so gullible. Um, <laughs> we, we get a bit of a scrappy slow start uh, before, as I said, about Luger tack- uh, tagging in once his side had gained control. It pace picks up a little bit then, 
but then it slows right down when we have a nerve hold. I think it was Hawk applied a nerve hold to Luger, giving me SummerSlam 93 vibes with Yokozuna pinching his shoulders and so on. And I, I'm not a big fan of all that. It basically breaks down into a bit of a mess. And then the Road Warriors arrive. Uh, they hit a member of Harlem Heat with a steel plate, we're told. It's a big sheet like section of metal, I guess. And Luger gets the pin. Now, Luger then celebrates like he's just won the singles world title on his own. He's, he is very, very happy. And he tells uh, Sting in a post-match interview with Gene that I told you I'd come through for you and all this, which I laughed. Literally, I sat there and I laughed out loud because it was just brilliant shithousery from Lex Luger. It was superb. And of course, naturally, Sting didn't see a thing. Oh, of course. Uh, I mean, that is the perfect thing for... Um... Lex Luger to do because he didn't cheat at the end of the day. I mean, he cheated with the role of quarters and other foreign ob- objects and things like that. But this on this pe- pay-per-view, he didn't cheat, did he? Well, no, I guess. It wasn't him that used the foreign object. It wasn't him that was the illegal man, so to speak. Yeah, he was very, very happy with himself. And again, it just adds more to, to this whole story. And we're going to see them again shortly when they face the road warriors what comes next i wasn't overly impressed with i'll I'll let you talk us through this one danny a united states title match it's it's not good is it in a word no (laughs) it was um we had conan versus the one man gang for the united states championship um uh, the one th- the one positive you can say about this is at least they explained the title switch um, in during One Man Gang's entrance because I was sat there thinking, wow, when did Conan win the US Championship? But they explained it, it was on, I believe, Saturday night before this. Um, so that was one good thing about it. Um, in terms of the match itself, quite rough. I mean, it was a mesh of styles, I think, and I I don't think it played very well. And this is coming from someone who just watched a one-man gang match from uh, Heroes of Wrestling in 1999. (laughs) Um, So at this point, I don't think he was um, into this match at all. What did you think about it, Si? I think you're being very generous. Uh, If I was to summarise this, I would just point blank say this this started off bad and got worse. Is probably the best way of putting it. Um, the bell rings and Conan's facing the wrong direction. I don't understand why you would do that. That's ridiculous. Uh, when the one-man gang is in control, it's a very slow, brawling style. One thing I did kind of enjoy was the one-man gang getting bumped into the ropes and then Conan hitting a weird kind of cross-body effort that took them both to the outside. Whereas it looked a bit clunky, looked a bit messy. It was still you know, something decent, but then it just got so slow, didn't it? So, so slow, but not slow in a good way. Just incredibly slow. Conan's fight back comes with a few drop kicks and one of them he misses, but it's not even like one man gang swats him away or steps aside. He literally just misses by at least a yard and a half. And it just looks ridiculous. And people, people at this point are booing and actively laughing in the crowd at what they're seeing. I noticed that. I wrote that down. It was like, uh, if there was any match to put on the pre-show, I think this would have been the best one to put on. Um, uh, I don't know. That, United States title, Danny. United States title. Do you really want to relegate that to the pre-show? Oh, yeah. Good point, actually. <laughs> but um, the the head scissors takedown that Conan hit on 
one man gang barely. Um, yeah. I think that to me that was uh, the worst part of this match because it looked so terrible. And um, the one man gang, would you say he was in? His, he was out of his prime here, or I mean, I think I asked you that last week about the nasty boys, but. Uh, what would he wasn't exactly past it, was he? I mean, he was only in his mid thirties at this point. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, but I, I don't think I don't think he was that good in the first place. To be fair, <laughs> <laughs> I can't turn around to you now and say there's a what. I mean, he wrestled for the WWF in the eighties. He was involved in the very early Survivor Series and so on. He also wrestled as Akeem the African Dream uh, with Big Boss Man. Uh, and in that tag team in like 89 he was on the card at SummerSlam 89 and, and all that sort of stuff and i cannot tell you a one-man gang or akeem match to go and watch even if i was really really thought about it and i was being really generous i couldn't tell you a match to go and watch and i would just say at least this is passable there's not much at all i would well nothing at all to be fair i would recommend this wow. is worse. Don't get me wrong. This is worse. At least in the other matches, he's in a tag and you can hide a few bits. And at least there's, at least there's Akimi does some funky dancing for us, I guess. I don't know. But um, <laughs> yeah, this is a, uh, this is not good at all. Not good at all. The, he hits his seven, four, seven finisher at the one man gang and then elects not to pin him. But even then he messes that up. It doesn't look very good. And he tries to hit a splash from the middle rope. And he's nowhere near. Conan moves, but even if Conan stayed still, it wouldn't have hit him. It was that terrible away. And then obviously, like you said, Conan does this weird head scissors kind of effort to get the win. And I mean, it's just crap. So there we go. Yeah. And I think he calls that the tequila sunrise. But if you, I mean, that was just a poor effort, to be honest. And just mesh of styles that's what you could say to this match yeah again i think you're being you're being quite kind but yeah fair enough mate fair enough you're you're, you're a nicer person than i <laughs> we cut back to our buddy mean gene again backstage who is definitely earning his few quid on this pay-per-view and gene for some reason is talking about sewer pipes leaking behind him or something i don't quite understand what that's all about Maybe he's explaining that uh, previous match he just saw. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that 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 behind us. That was that what just happened. Pure sewage, mate. That's what Gene's saying. <laughs> uh, Gene is there, however, to speak to the Road Warriors, who are going to be facing the victorious team of Sting and Luger later on the show. Well, I say later; it's fast approaching. I guess they basically say they're sorry to Harlem Heat, but they don't really mean it. And it, I mean. All the Road Warrior promos are very similar. They're shitey, growly promos uh, and so on. But yeah, there's something quite captivating about them. Even when half the interview is nonsense, it just kind of works. It does. It must be that warrior gene that they they share with um, the Ultimate Warrior. It's like <laughs> there's a charisma, isn't there, about them? Yeah, there is. There is indeed. Um our next match is full of charisma, I suppose. When you look at Mr. Brian Pillman, this guy is absolutely superb. But this is I, this is a really odd one for me because of what happens, the aftermath, and so on. Effectively, what we have is Brian Pillman versus Kevin Sullivan in what WCW are describing as a respect match. And it's described quite well on commentary 
as being a cross between a strap match and an I quit match. So the the competitors are tied together with a leather strap, very much like in a strap match. But the microphone is with the referee, and they have to say, I respect you, rather than I quit. So it's kind of a crossover of two older style formats. And I quite like this idea. This this is quite interesting to me. The match starts with Pillman sprinting to the ring. He's not after any fancy introductions or slow walk to the ring to his horseman music or anything. That runs to the ring, starts scrapping with Sullivan. It looks it looks a little more real than we're used to, I think. Sullivan's reaction to some of it is quite interesting as well. Eventually, Sullivan kind of scraps back a bit. He's completely out of breath very early on because this is not the usual Sullivan style. This is like a, a, a rolling brawling scrap there's a bit more a bit more intensity to this so he's out of breath instantly pillman runs over to the referee grabs the microphone and says the now infamous line i respect you booker man and then just walks out the ring before we get on to what follows what did you think of this danny i was very shocked because um as as this match was uh about to begin i was thinking yes this is the match i'm actually looking forward to the most on the pay-per-view um due to the um the messy brawl that they had a few nitros ago this was and then when that happened it was like he just walked out i was thinking oh. i was so i was actually really disappointed because i was i was expecting a long match between these two um i'd heard about this uh booker man line thing but i'd never actually seen it and i certainly didn't know it was on this pay-per-view i thought it was actually he said that on um, ecw no it i mean basically for those who are unaware which i I think will be very very few of you kevin sullivan at this point was the booker he was very heavily involved in in structuring the shows and the storylines and so on now pillman coming out and saying i respect you booker man and then walking out the ring was one of the very first times anyone heard the phrase Booker or the book or, or anything of that kind of aspect on, I mean, kayfabe in 96 was very, very much still going, even if people deep down didn't really believe it as a, as a viewer, it was still very much enforced. So this was incredibly unique. This was an amazing situation. What followed was Arn Anderson coming out in quite an odd pair of shorts and shirt combination and then undoing his shirt and starting to wrestle with kevin sullivan until flair comes out to stop things and say we've got a common aim here we're, we're all here to end hulkamania let's band together let's stop this madness now there's a couple of different trains of thought to this in that everything that you see in front of you was already arranged and this is how it was supposed to go down before the show started. The second one that is partially confirmed by the likes of Eric Bischoff and so on is that the Pillman situation that was arranged between he and Bischoff. That was, uh, that was, that was the plan because Pillman was in theory playing this loose cannon gimmick. He was going to do what he did here, walk out the ring and then everyone all the boys in the back, the likes of Meltzer and everyone else would be thinking, oh my God, he's walked out on a live pay-per-view and all this. 
To make this even more believable, Pillman convinced Bischoff to actually release him from WCW, fire him for what he did. Pillman then was going to turn up a few times on ECW TV, which he did. And then depending on who you listen to, the story gets a little bit blurred because Bischoff has recently said that the plan was always for Pillman to go across the WWF and then come back a bigger star. Other people have said, no, Pillman basically tricked Eric into getting his release to sign for more money for the WWF. And Bischoff thought that Pillman was going to work a couple of smaller shots for ECW and then come back and be like the the, 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 the WCW guy who's battling ex-WWF wrestlers or whatever. There's lots of different stories. But either way, the whole Pillman respect you book a man walk out the ring there's only a very select number of people that knew that was going to happen wow. again according to on anderson and depending on who you ask and what year you ask them bischoff and so on on anderson didn't know that this was going to happen Arn's just sat at the back chilling out he's not booked for the evening he thinks pillman's gone off off the rails and that's why Arn comes out to try and work in pillman's place to save the angle again it's a big gray area as to how much of that is true how much of it isn't um bischoff has said uh, that's true in the past he has then also gone back on himself in other interviews uh, i've not done a great deal of research into what Arn himself says that's something i may need to look into i wish i'd done it before we recorded i apologize for not being as prepared as i should um it, there's a lot of gray areas around that the whole aspect of flair coming out to stop the match and say come on let's calm down we've got a common goal apparently that was always the plan but pillman was supposed to be in the ring instead of anderson because it leads into things later on i think i've covered everything there but there is so many gray areas and you know different stories and so on as to what happened who know who knew who didn't know and so on so yeah i think i've covered everything danny is there anything any anything you need to ask or anything you want to comment about well uh, this is the first time i'm hearing all of this because i just thought um pillman had left and went to ecw and then wwf um i didn't realize anything about this eric bishop negotiations or arn anderson not knowing and things like that that just blows me i'm sat here just wow just um quite shocked by that and very interested to see where WSW will take the Brian Pillman um, story, the character, even if he's not there. Um, one thing I did write down was I was quite shocked that they showed him uh, flipping off the crowd as well at this point. Um, it, there was a clear cut shot of uh, Pillman just swearing at the, at the fans. I think a child <laughs> as well. <laughs> and um, this whole, angle you can call it because we can call it a match because it turned into two matches but this whole angle just i was sat here as when i was watching i was thinking wow that i i believed in this 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 tricked me it got me to believe in um kayfabe for a second because it was like when arn anderson came out in in street clothes and things like that i was like well i've just scrambled things together and pillman has gone off the into the deep end so top marks to WSW for actually, if this was a work, um, what do you personally believe, Sir, Do you think it was a work or did Pillman just do this on his own? Uh, the Pillman, the, the Pillman aspect, that, that, that was arranged between him and Bischoff. That was always the plan. And, and as I said, Pillman at this stage, it was already arranged that Pillman was going to be fired. 
because if Pillman left the company and then did some stuff for ECW, uh, people would be like, even though the internet wasn't up and running as we know it now, some people in the dirt sheets and Meltzer and all that rabble, they'd be like, well, hang on a second. It doesn't seem like Pillman's really been fired because they can find out this information. I mean, ultimately, you know, contracts are contracts and so on. To try and trick those people, try and work, I suppose is the term, I, I guess, to try and work those people Pillman convinced Bischoff to give him a pro- his papers. He, he convinced him to fire him properly to make the gimmick even more believable. So th- this is how we know, because both that, that has been confirmed by, by, by Bischoff as well. That's how we know that that aspect of it is all true. That, that, that was pre-planned. What happens after? I don't know. I don't know if Arn was in on it and he ran down and that was part of the story, or if what I've heard in a, a few interviews with different people Arn was just acting off his own back to try and run down and save the show or the match. I'm not sure. Like I said, I've read somewhere that Bischoff, I think it was Bischoff said that he knew about it. I've read somewhere else that Bischoff said that he Arn didn't, and it was kind of him off his own back. I, I don't know. I, I don't see Arn running to the ring in the middle of a pay-per-view and then he and Sullivan working just off their own back on a live pay-per-view without... Uh, without, uh, it would be stopped somehow. Well, I suppose it was stopped with Flair, wasn't it? So, and the Flair aspect, Bischoff has adamantly said that was always going to happen. So, if that was always going to happen, I don't know. Maybe Arn was trying to save the angle. I don't know. There's a lot of grey areas tr- there. It's a tricky one, isn't it? It's like, mm. oh, what, like, what is going on? And it definitely keeps us intrigued to keep watching and see what happens, um, especially now that the Dungeon of Doom and the Four Horsemen are all reunited now. What what, what will happen? Yes, exactly, exactly. And Pillman's gone. Pillman's been fired. He was he was, he was, was fired either that night or the next day or the day after. A very short period of time, he was gone. And his, his papers showing that he was released were made public and they were you know, proper legal documents. And that's how the likes of Meltzer and so on bought into what Bischoff and Pillman were trying to do. And then Pillman did his ECW shots. And then rather than go back to WCW, he went to the WWF. Eric at the time could offer more money than the WWF. So it, the argument that he was supposed to go to the WWF for a bit and then come back a, a bigger, hotter star, it does hold a little bit of water with what Bischoff says, but also a lot of people say that Bischoff said that because Pillman worked him. Pillman got him to release him so he could go to WCW and Bischoff's just trying to save his own face in, in, in the, in the view of the public. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to have to do a lot more research into this and perhaps we can come back and cover it on, on another show, Danny. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would go with that with Eric Bischoff trying to save face because he does so in every other interview he does. <laughs> Yeah, that is true. That is true. Uh, we have a promo from the giant here, and it's it's basically the same sort of promo we've got from every big guy monster heel since 1984. Hulkamania will die at my hands. So thank you for that, Mister White. We uh, we then go to our second tag team championship match of the evening. The Road Warriors face Sting and Lex Luger. The entrances here again are incredibly interesting to me. The Road Warriors look badass. That music playing, granted it's not their WWF music or it's not Iron Man, which they used to come to the ring to in the past as well, but it just worked. The flashing lights worked. The way they stride to the ring, like very purposeful. They just looked like absolute badasses. On the other side of the fence, 
Luger just looks like he doesn't want to be there. And I think this was so well done. Talk us through the Luger entrance in in, in, in particular, Danny, and what you thought about how he, he played this role here. He was, I mean, stalling could be the word, but um, he was just, it was like an over-exaggerated stall. He was like trying to just play it out as long as he could. He was like, oh, do I have to do this? Do I have to, why must I do it? It was like, <laughs> do you know when... Um, first day at school and you don't want to go in the gates because you don't know anyone and the teacher's like come on come on. and you're just standing there like oh should I or shouldn't I that's <laughs> what I've got that's the vibes I've got off of Lex here and um but Sting was all for it I mean this is his second match of the night and you could tell he was just it was like come on we'll take on the LOD and um yeah yeah it was the Lex Lucas definitely wanted no part of this yeah, he, he at one point even decides he's not going to bother at all, does he? And walks off. He's, he's basically yeah. back at the entrance curtain, and Sting goes and fetches him. Uh, uh, that that you know that that likeness you put forward of the kid going into school for the first day, that was really accurate. That's exactly the sort of imagery you get from Luger here. And I suppose Sting then would be playing the role of the teacher, saying, "Come on, come on, you'll be all right," you know. And that's the vibe I got you know, now. Thinking about it, when Sting went to fetch Luger from the curtain. Um, I find Luger absolutely fascinating in these in this this time period. It's, he's doing really really well. Sting and Hawk start the match. Um, we get a slightly messed up netbreaker, but it's nothing too bad. The crowd don't really know who they should be backing here, which kind of makes it a little bit of an awkward dynamic when you're watching it back. Um, after the netbreaker kind of error, Hawk goes into an STF, which I thought was brilliant because I don't think we've seen much of that from the Road Warriors ever potentially. Um, Sting gets beaten up for quite a while Luger does tag in but he does not look keen at all does he <laughs> no he doesn't I was actually shocked that he tagged in here I wrote that down I was thinking oh I thought he was just actually going to jump down when Sting wanted to tag him but I was pleasantly surprised yeah we, we do see a difference in Luger however when Animal takes an accidental low blow from Sting so in theory Animal is he's on the deck unable to defend himself Luger is very keen to tag in then. He wants to go at them then, doesn't he? He tags himself in and has a go then. But uh, eventually we get Sting returning to the ring. Sting misses a top rope splash. Uh, Both Sting and Animal no-sell vertical suplexes, which I've always said I'm not a fan of, but in this instance, it was kind of cool because, you know, Sting's flex after his no-sell got a reaction from the crowd. And that was the first time the crowd really kind of we, we, there was noise there. There was crowd noise and interaction there. But this is the first real big moment of crowd reaction to this match, Danny. I think it was. It was like um, there, there was, I think they were so shocked by what had happened in the previous match. Um, there was just it took a lot to wake them up. But when they did wake up, they were. I mean, to be honest, this whole night I was actually shocked how not uh, maybe it was the audio audio problems but i was actually shocked for a florida wrestling crowd they were quite actually um mediocre weren't they they weren't really on their hands and like they weren't really um jumping up and down yeah i guess i mean the opener they were quite into but i suppose that the level of uh, i suppose the level of violence potentially is going to get a reaction they didn't seem too keen on the Dion Dallas Page Johnny B. Bad match, but then eventually they got dragged into it by the end, which I think is, is testament to how good those two guys were together because they dragged me in as well. Um, yeah, this match here, I suppose you've got the, the the Road Warriors who are very popular. 
uh, and Sting on the other side who was very popular kind of splits the audience a little bit. We don't quite know who to cheer for. Yeah, no, I still I, I think it's a good a good point. They were a bit of a mixed or a mixed audience, a mixed a mixed bunch all the way through the show, weren't they? Yeah, definitely. And um I think what they popped most um, when Animal Noel sold a Sting suplex because I was thinking, yeah, they, they must remember Animal and the uh, Hulk from the uh, days when they were doing that. But, yeah, and then we get um, both teams brawling to the outside and then uh, it kind of just ends in a double count-out, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a bit really weird because I had this discussion with um, Chris Bellis the other day. It was like are you a fan of having two um one we'll say wonky finishes on a pay-per-view or one more than one um like weird finish on um a pay-per-view side um i think it's really difficult to answer a question like that with a straightforward yes or no because i think it depends hugely upon a couple of aspects one being how those finishes are handled and then two, how the rest of the card is structured. So say for example, you've got two schmozzy finishes to, to, you know, finishes with shenanigans surrounding them or whatever. If one's in the opener and one's in the semi main, are they far enough apart for the, for us not to be that concerned? Maybe so. That's a good point. That's a really good point because I was just thinking like from more from a TV aspect of like these should be saved for the television and then we should get the clean finishes. But if it makes sense as well, that's what um, Chris Bellis said is like if it's st- if the story's right, mm. then yeah, maybe uh, more than one. But I mean, we've seen pay-per-views that have like four of them or five of them <laughs> and it's just a bit, it can be a bit chaotic, but this is our second of the night, so... Yeah, when you're getting into that sort of... I mean, you think about it, a pay-per-view. Some pay-per-views, you, you've got as few as six matches on. Other pay-per-views, you can have as many as 10, 11, whatever, depending on what show it is and so on. If you start getting into that sort of five matches of the night, have shenanigans in the finish, it probably is a bit too much, especially if you've paid your, your 25 quid pay-per-view rate or however much people want to pay for it. I, I, I appreciate that. However, on, in this instance, I think it does further not just the separate stories, but the whole tag division as a whole, because you, you've had a wild brawl in the opener straight off the bat between Public Enemy and the Nasty Boys. So all of a sudden, fans are going to be talking about them. Then in the same show, on the same pay-per-view, you've had Harlem Heat, who are a very big established tag team in WCW at this point, cheated out of their world title match. So they can argue we deserve a title shot. We deserve another title match because we've been conned out of ours with outside interference. So you then got uh, the two teams in the opener that are very much at the forefront of fans' minds because it was a hard-hitting match with, with maybe not maybe not you know a five-star classic by any stretch, but it's going to stand out in people's minds. And then you, you have Harlem Heat who are cheated out of their opportunity as well. So that's three teams there that arguably fans could be thinking, oh, I'd like to see them go for the title. You then get the Road Warriors who the champions couldn't beat because it ends in a double DQ. You've now got four teams who can argue we should be number one contenders and be going for the championships. And then you've still also got even more, I suppose, top you know, fuel thrown into the whole Sting Luger dynamic there. And those are your champions. To me, this whole show on the tag team side 
really advance the division going forward. I think, the, the, the hopefully anyway, looking at what we've had here, the following Nitros and then the following pay-per-views, we should see some really good tag team matches, title matches, people deciding who gets a shot and who doesn't, purely because of what this pay-per-view is set up going forward. I would appreciate how frustrating it would be if you had more of those sort of shitty shenanigan finishes. But in this instance, it fits the story and the development, I guess, the story arc they're going with. To me, anyway. Does that make sense? That does, yeah. It makes total sense. Thank you, Matt. Oh, yeah. No, you've got to thank me, mate. No worries. <laughs> uh, after the double count out here, we get a little bit more with Mean Gene. And he is joined by the nature boy, Ric Flair, who is challenging Randy Savage for the WCW World Heavyweight title in one of our cage match main events. And he is with Woman. And it's a typical Flair promo. He's going to go out and he's going to wrestle Savage. He's going to do this. He's going to take Liz away from Savage as well. He's going to win the world title. And then Gene asks, nodding at Woman, Gene asks Flair, if you are victorious, does this mean that we're going to get a ride on Space Mountain? whilst winking and nodding at woman and flair responds with the line and i loved this it's going to be woman on my left liz on my right but i won't tell anyone who i'm with tonight woo 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 oh just he's a bastard but he's a cool bastard um (laughs) (laughs) he's brilliant yes indeed the cage slowly comes down and we see the cage not sit properly on the ring. So they cut to an ad for, for the Uncensored pay-per-view coming out next month. Well, I assume they untangle the ring and get it tied on properly. <laughs> the, the Uncensored pay-per-view is coming up at the end of March. And, you know, I know where the main event goes for that. So, Danny, don't hold your breath. Um, we, <laughs> we have a Randy Savage promo. And he is there with Liz, and Liz looks absolutely stunning. This I mean, she did most you know, all the time you saw her, but she looks she looks stunning this evening. Uh, but the biggest takeaway I get from the promo is Randy Savage saying about he and Hulk Hogan, and I quote, "We are cool." So yeah, if you got to say it, mate, you're probably not. This is 1996. I uh, oh um, yeah. What about Macho Man said this ten years beforehand? Yeah, I still wouldn't have thought he was that cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we do get a moment that is that is pretty cool and do make me laugh, however. Whilst we get the opinions of our commentary team, Mean Gene asks for the opinion from Bobby Heenan, Tony Schiavone, and Dusty Rhodes as to how this, this world title match is going to go. So we cut to the desk, and we're getting the usual camera angle of the three commentators there, sat in a line, all, all there. Um, the desk is pointing towards the crowd, and we're the other side. And we have Dusty Rhodes facing the camera, arms crossed, talking to the camera. We have Tony Schiavone sat next to him, similar similar pose, similar stature, talking to the camera. Bobby Heenan's got his back to the camera, staring straight out in front of himself, which is just brilliant in itself. However, Tony Schiavone starts nudging him and knocking him on the shoulder and so on to get him to turn around. So he tries to turn his uh, his office chair around, I suppose, for one of a better description. It's like one of those spinny chairs on wheels. And he gets his headset cable tangled up a little bit, and he's knocking stuff over before he turns around and then just gives a massive rant about how Ric Flair is going to win the world title. Bobby Heenan was a bloody genius, wasn't he? How entertaining is this guy? 
You could tell this was by accident and he made it look like it was on purpose. And this is, um, it reminded me of primetime Bobby Heenan. It was like where he was constantly making a fool of himself. But even so, he would say, I mean, if he slipped on a banana peel, he would say, oh, that banana peel was supposed to be there. That type of thing. That's the type of performer he um, was. Yeah, absolutely. See, I, I don't think this was an accident. I think Heenan's done all this deliberately. I think this is he, this is this is supposed to look accidental on screen, but I think Heenan Heenan has done it to just be entertaining. And you hear stories from Tony Schiavone now that Heenan would do shit like this to try and make Dusty laugh because he would make Dusty break character on screen uh, and stuff like that. And it's just like I I can imagine him sat there thinking, "How can I mess with Dusty tonight?" You know, <laughs> that sort yeah. of thing, you know. But there we go. Oh, that's good point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Michael Buffer is here for our double main event. So, you know, WCW are obviously feeling incredibly flush and rich this evening. Uh, first of all, despite Bobby Heenan exclaiming it in his predictions, when he finally did face the camera in the right direction, there is no roof on the cage, Bobby. I'm afraid you've got that slightly wrong. Flair just, comes just out. Tip. Yeah, just a bit, just a bit. Uh, Flair comes out, takes the microphone, and basically says to Liz, come over here and kiss a real man. Savage answers for her, which was, I, I'm not sure about that, but there we go. Um, <laughs> it was on brand, sir. It was totally on brand. But, <laughs> but just quickly, just before we get past this, how great did Woman and Ric Flair look as a duo to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it helps when, because the, the, the ladies in, in this era that are around Flair, not even around Flair, I mean, pa- Diamond Dallas Page's wife, Kimberly, wore something similar when we first started watching back in, in 95. Those kind of ball games that were the gemstones, and you can see, I suppose, you can imagine them being worn by younger ladies going to the prom in their school or going to a big, expensive dinner ball in the evenings or whatever. That kind of, you know, big, elegant, glittery ball game. You then have Flair's robe. If Flair's robe is the same color, Flair's always covered in gemstones anyway. So it does kind of tie in. And you're right, it just, as a package, they looked brilliant, didn't they? But I think the same with. Liz and Randy Savage one because Liz is coming out in a blue dress and Savage is wearing blue and yellow. And I think they tied in really. I mean, to me, it's something that some people may not notice or some people may not even care about. But to me, the visual presentation here is just going that extra little mile by the performers and it really helps with what you're seeing. It's all to do with the colour scheme, isn't it? It's like, this is the big time. You wouldn't see this on an indie show. (laughs) Well, wow, no, there you go. There you go. And Flair takes a long time to get in the ring, but this is masterful heel work, isn't it? Because the crowd are getting frustrated with him. Savage is chomping at the bit to get his hands on him. It's just really good work by Ric Flair. But when he does get into the ring, he just lays out the referee. <laughs> it's all mind games. Si. I mean, he's playing mind games straight off the bat with Liz here, isn't he? Hmm. Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, I'm going to run through a few spots quickly, Danny. And then I'm going to come back to the earlier part of the match and then the finish. Because I've got a question for you here with regards to the two cage matches on the same show. And I want to kind of get to that via this cage match here. Now, early on, the cage isn't needed at all. It's not used. They're basically resting in the middle of the ring. There's uh, your usual flair, savage kind of moments and it, it's great i mean savage ends up using a figure four for quite a while and there's a mixed reaction to that to be fair um savage 
initially does use the cage to climb right to the very top very quickly to try an axe handle, which is missed, and Flair counters it. And we get a, a Savage then bumps into the cage in a crazy sideways kind of way. Um, Flair then hits the figure four. Flair bleeds. Flair's arse is out for what seems like half the match. Um, <laughs> there's a pinfall here. There's a two count, but the referee rings the bell. Then there's a low blow by Flair. Woman tries to throw powder in Savage's face, kind of misses. Whilst this is going on, Liz passes Ric Flair her shoe. Flair gets nailed with the shoe. One, two, three. Flair wins. Uh, and and Elizabeth has turned on, on Savage and is siding with Woman and, and Ric Flair. Now, again, early on, cage wasn't used. Later on, we have referee distractions for the shoe moment to happen that deception of you know trying to conceal it away from the referee even when it's a non-dq match the cage match is always it's always non-dq considering we've got hogan giant following this do you think this needed to be in the cage to achieve what we got no i don't i think this could have been done it was like you're right it was like the cage was barely used but like, could this have been done in? And if they wanted another stipulation, because these had wrestled quite a bit on nitros and pay per views beforehand. But if you wanted a stipulation, what would you have chose, Ty? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, mean, I suppose from one aspect, the cage being up, and again, this is all in massive hindsight. Just a conversation between you and me, and so on. I mean, this this pay per view happened 25 years ago, or whatever it bloody was. And so again, power hindsight and so on. I'm probably being quite nitpicky here, but the cage in a Ric Flair match, especially back in the territory days, was always there to keep the horsemen out. So I can appreciate that aspect of it. However, the way they've got two cage matches on the show, I mean, Hogan Giant closing the match, closing the pay-per-view, sorry, in a cage, even though it's not for the world title, and I'm fully aware I'm going to contradict myself now because I've said in the past plenty of times it annoys me, I can understand Hogan Giant closing the show because it's in a cage, it's Hogan Giant, it's a big deal. I can appreciate that. If that's in a cage, do we need the world title to be in a cage as well? Because the world title match is for the world title. That makes it special enough. So this being in a cage, did it take away from Hogan Giant being in a cage? Is kind of the question I'm asking. The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media.
That's a very good question as well, but I think the only reason I can think of why it was in a cage was to because they announced it was a double cage match, uh, double cage affair um, in the weeks leading up to this, and because we've been watching the nitros before, it was like in a lot of Flair's matches, the Horseman would run in or the Dungeon of Doom would run in. Maybe in a kayfabe sense, it was to keep them out, but I completely mm. see your point as well. It's like maybe too much of a good thing is sour for for i mean yes yeah it can be a bit too much um but i i think they were just trying to get their money's worth out of that steel cage yeah potentially but i mean i suppose you look at you look at how wwe do it now potentially with say an elimination chamber pay-per-view or a hell in a cell where you're going to get more than one I'll use the term cage match, but you know what I mean? Chamber or hell in the sun, whatever. Stipulation match then, shall we say. You're going to get more than one cage match on those pay-per-views because the pay-per-view is named after that sort of match and that stipulation. They will always open with the the, the, the special match, the chamber or whatever, and then normally close with the chamber. And then everything in between gives you a chance to recover and breathe and so on. And it's almost like the two matches then aren't competing directly up against each other because they're separate enough for you to view them as separate entities, potentially. That's how I feel anyway, uh, in my own mind. Here, I appreciate you don't want to open with Hogan versus the Giant. Of course not. I would be cross if they opened with the world title. So I know I'm contradicting myself again here. But having both cage matches back-to-back, it just seemed a little bit overkill for me and the reason i wanted to ask about that as well not just because of what we saw today you are obviously a and have been a massive tna fan probably probably you know along with our good friend dan griffin who i record the doctor who podcast with uh, one of the biggest tna fans i know now they have a pay-per-view or did have i'm not sure if it still happens called uh lockdown and every single match was in a steel cage or the six sides of steel depending on which era we're talking about that felt overkill to me. Now, as a TNA fan, watching it, probably buying more into the storylines than I did, did you enjoy those pay-per-views? Or did it get a bit samey? Or I, I don't know. How did you find those? I enjoyed it because um, at that time when I started watching TNA in 2005, 2006, it was like that was a brand new thing. Um, that was something that WWE would eventually steal from TNA because WWE did not do... Of like a, a gimmick pay-per-views at that point. It, TNA was, if they weren't the first, um, they certainly were the biggest because um, it, can, it I can see how it could be overkill because you've got, that's why they had to throw things in like, yes, it's in a cage, but we're, we're doing a blindfold match in a cage or an arm wrestling match in a cage or okay. escape, escape the cage. 
Um, there was so oh, electrified steel cage. There were so many other gimmicks thrown in just to freshen it up a little bit. And then they eventually just went and stole uh, the war games uh, aspect and had um, lethal lockdown where, but instead of that, they had um, a, a, a roof come down with weapons. So they tried to dress it up as much as they could to try and um, dress, just basically dress up the pay-per-view to make it uh, more, a bit more fresh. Okay, so that's really interesting because if you've got, uh, again, a TNA pay-per-view, I'm going to assume on average was about three hours, the same as most of what you'd see. Three hours of cage matches, to me, I'm thinking that's going to get very samey. But I've watched some of these events and I did always enjoy them. So I suppose, again, I'm contradicting myself here. I'm not having a very good evening with that, I guess. But (laughs) it's having different types of cage matches for each 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 you know each contest has a different stipulation that just happens to be in the cage that that would be quite intriguing to to me anyway from from outside looking in yeah and we also had the wedding in the steel cage as well if i remember but i think that was on impact <laughs> oh dear is that so the bride couldn't run away <laughs> yeah <laughs> also no, the horseman but... couldn't interfere <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um no that is a good point you bring up um it gets me thinking though should macho man versus rick flair or hulk hogan versus giant had a different stipulation in their cage matches mm. again I, I to a degree i suppose you did because the hogan giant match hogan comes out i mean ultimately we'll, we'll cover the end of the savage match first obviously savage has lost the world title we have a new world champion it, it, it's rick flair um Hogan comes out with a chair and chases Elizabeth, which is a little bit off, but there we go. Uh, we get some Hogan sucks chants here, though, quite audible on, on the show. Um, Hogan goes into the ring, helps Savage out. And then Hogan's with Mean Gene, and he says that his cage match is going to be unsanctioned, and the, uh, the referee is going to be on the outside. The only way to win is to escape. So I suppose they have tried to put a difference in there to a degree. I guess because you couldn't win the world title cage match via escape. That was literally just pinfall submission, etc. So I suppose there is a difference to them. But I'm thinking Flair and Savage again. I'm I'm, I'm looking at it from my own personal standpoint. In 1996, to ignore the knowing the Hogan booze. He was still the main man. He's going on last. He's facing the giant in a cage. It's going to be an attraction, of course it is. To me personally, as a cynical 41 year old old man. I'm thinking, could they have done something a bit? Could they have had something in between, or could could we have split it up a little bit? Or I don't know. I don't know. Again, I'm getting very picky here. It's not it's not a big deal, but I'm, I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts, especially with the TNA aspect as well. So yeah, yeah. No, you bring up a great point. There it was like, um, but Hulk Hogan saying that oh, so it's an unsanctioned match. It's kind of blowing the next pay per view away, isn't it? Well, yeah, I guess. I mean, again, I know what happens in the next pay-per-view, so let's not get ahead of ourselves, Danny, because trust me, we do not want to rush there. Um, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So our main event then, our our second main event, I suppose, is Hogan versus the Giant in the cage. And we get the Giant out first to some green lighting and the, the funny Dungeon of Doom music. And he's with Kevin Sullivan and with Jimmy Hart again. Now, I got a bit of a kick out of this whole match. Whenever you saw the, I don't know how you'd word it, management duo of Jimmy Hart and Kevin Sullivan on the outside, 
it just came across like Kevin Sullivan was just so tired of Jimmy Hart's shit. <laughs> Every time you saw them, he was like, oh, for goodness sake, Jimmy, stand still. Or something, you know, it just, I just got that vibe. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I just assumed Sullivan was just um, depressed over what happened beforehand with uh, Brian Pillman. That's why he was acting like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you just had somebody, you know, do what they did in the ring to you in a, in a, on, on live on pay-per-view, your first match on pay-per-view in a little while. And, you know, how can we smooth this over for you? I'll tell you what, Kevin, stick on your silly dressing game. We're going to make Jimmy Hart follow you around for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> brilliant but i think he would be more um upset that he was exposed as the booker now because now fans know that yeah i mean i think it was cleverly done by the commentary team as well because shivani referenced it quite a few times he kept saying pillman you know said i respect you and just left the term booker man was never repeated again on the show so i think that was quite a clever kind of almost uh, rewriting of what people heard potentially i don't know well i don't know if it's going to be replayed on nitro in full we'll have to find out next week when we look at the upcoming nitro but yeah there we go uh hogan comes down and enters the ring by climbing the cage and when he's on the top rope rips his shirt in the sort of hogan way now he does slip a little bit which was amusing to a degree but i thought that visual of Hogan climbing the cage and then standing on the very top rope, ripping his shirt as the crowds actually did react positively for him was quite a cool visual in a very 89 kind of way. Yeah. I was going to write that down. It was like, we've seen that um, in the WWF and I really am impressed with that visual. We also got um, Hulk Hogan's wife being shown on camera, Linda Hogan, Um, I don't know if you noticed that side, but she, she was cheering as well. um, Obviously. (laughs) I'll tell you what, I know who you're talking about when the camera spanned round. And this is so strange because when the camera spanned round, I caught her literally out the corner of my eye. I don't know if I was making a note or if I was uh, concentrating on something else. And there was this lady there who obviously had a very, shall we say, Hogan-esque tan and the bleached blonde hair. And she obviously wasn't just some ordinary ticket buyer. She was somebody who was, you know, of name value, I guess, in the wrestling industry. As the camera spanned round, just at the corner of my eye, catching a quick glimpse, I thought, was that Brooke Hogan? As in Hogan's daughter. And I was like, no, it's 1996. She'd be tiny. Of course it's not Brooke Hogan. And I didn't give it another thought. But now you're saying it was Hogan's wife. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they do look very similar, don't they? Uh, Brooke Hogan and her mother. But yeah, yeah. that's At this point, yeah. I mean, obviously when, when, when Hogan's wife gets older, not so much. But at this stage, yeah, that was, that was, that was really weird. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, back to that visual. Um, that's an excellent point because uh, I think the first time I saw that was um, in a cage match with uh, the big boss man and Hulk Hogan, and it was like, what? I think there's posters of that of Hulk Hogan yeah. climbing top of the, that blue steel cage and just ripping his shirt off. Always a cool visual. But yeah. um, I have to give Hulk Hogan credit here as well. He's selling the eye from uh, last um, Nitro, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, he's very patched up, and they're talking about how he can't see properly to the one side and so on. I mean, again, it's it's the whole... <sighs> this whole main event is very old-school Hogan to me. It's Hogan versus a monster bad guy. The, the odds are stacked against him. He's got an injury as well. It's very much a case of hogan and the power of hulkamania can he overcome the odds and so on and even the style of match the way the match is structured is a very 
old school 80s Hogan type match. I'm not saying there's anything particularly wrong with that because it made a lot of money. And in the 80s, as a kid, I loved that shit. In 96, maybe not so much. But we know a change is coming, so I'm okay with it to a degree. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I've we've, we've watched Hulk Hogan matches a lot, and I finally decided this week I'm going to write down all of Hulk Hogan's heel antics. So would you like to hear, <laughs> would you like to hear them in order, sir, of how he was working heel? Okay, let me strap in then, mate. Let me strap in. You crack on. So Hulk Hogan, this uh, on this episode, well, this pay per view, was biting his opponent, was choking his opponent with a t- with a t shirt, was using the steel cage. Although that's arguable, arguable, um, and he was also uh, raking the back, which I know you love, Sai. <laughs> and um, yeah, he was basically dominating this entire match. Um, as you said, it was a very old school formula of Hulk Hogan and things like that, but. Um, it was the giant got nothing in this match. I found, and we're, 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 as we get into the finish a bit later on, um, all my praise of Hulk Hogan is about to go down the toilet. <laughs> but oh, <okay>. um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll let you get into it first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so literally, this this moment now has popped into my head that I've not even thought of before. And I don't know if this is because of our good friend, Joshua Goodwin, who I do the the, the NXT Rise and Fall podcast with, because we had a brief discussion about Hulk Hogan after our recording a few hours ago. And, and Josh was, Joshua was pointing out that maybe I'm a bit harsh on Hogan at times. And then you'd saying then about the heel antics he's using, and we both just talked about how Hogan... the odds are stacked against him here. He's facing a bigger man. He's injured. He's got the eye problem and so on. Perhaps he's using the heel antics, the the, the sort of the little cheats, the little workarounds to try and even the odds. Cause in theory, he's supposed to be the underdog or am I just being too kind? Maybe too kind this because Hulk Hogan is supposed to be the ultimate good guy. And I mean, just, I can't think of an, baby a pure baby face that was booked like that not an anti-hero but uh, a pure baby face that would go around choking his opponent with his own t-shirt it was like (laughs) yeah you're right move i mean that's just like no i don't think you're being too kind uh, you were being too kind at all uh so yeah i suppose you don't ever see you know mid-90s Bret Hart scratch someone's back, do you? So. <laughs> no, or, or you, you wouldn't see John Cena biting somebody's face. No, this is true. This is true. Okay, okay. Maybe I, I, I sort of got a bit ahead of myself there. Uh, we do get more Andre the Giant uh, is the Giant's dad bullshit from commentary. Uh, we get some, I suppose, aspects of the 80s style Hogan v. Monster match that I'm not a fan of. And that is there's there's a test of strength or a Grecan Roman knuckle lock they call it in, in, in some occasions for a while, which to me is a big a big yawn. We get a bear hug on Hogan, which again, it, come on, do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> I wrote that it, down. <laughs> I, I wrote, this is my exact quote: "Giant with a great bear hug." Sorry, Sai. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got two. We got another bear hug as well later on. Uh, yeah, so. There's a weird kind of choke slam effort from the giant where maybe they just, I mean, ultimately they're wrestling here for, it's going to be pushing quarter of an hour, hasn't it, Danny? I think this match. Yeah, it was quite long, um, longer than I expected. 
Yeah, so maybe I mean, they're both probably they're both big guys that they're both probably probably feeling it a little bit and getting a little bit you know starved boxing room potentially. The choke slams maybe slightly mistimed or Hogan's a bit heavier than the giant anticipated. However, whatever happened, it went a bit astray slightly. Uh, Hogan hulks up though from that choke slam, which I'm sort of thinking, uh, okay, it's the guy's finish, but I didn't mind it at this moment because it looked like he didn't get all of it. To coin a phrase from Grilla Monsoon. Um, Hogan sends the giant into the cage over and over and over and over again, hits three of his big leg drops. And I'm thinking, oh, that's it. He's going to walk out the door. But no, he decides to try and climb the cage, which again, I thought was uh, Hogan doesn't need to do that. The guy's what, six, seven, 300 pounds? Walking out the door would have sufficed. He's hit three big leg drops, out you go, cup your ear, pose a bit jobs are good but no he decides to try and climb the cage which i thought was a little bit a little bit more than what was expected from hogan so so good shape to him there but then that actually leads to the real finish the leg drops are not the finish which is what i first thought because the giant follows hogan up the ropes takes a few punches and so on and then takes a big backwards bump off the top rope for hogan to climb over the top rope uh, sorry the top of the cage and win the match now, this is not a great contest in any way, stretch of the imagination. There's a lot of what I call yawn moments, the, the test of strength, the bear hugs and all that. But at the same time, and it's really odd to hear me say this because Hogan's involved. I didn't hate this. Yeah, I mean, it was entertaining. I mean, uh, as bad as the Giant suffered, and I think he did suffer during this, I mean, um, if you compare how he left Hulk Hogan in the last cage um, encounter where at Full Brawl, uh, where he basically uh, did everything but murder him, um, and then you compare to this, Hulk Hogan definitely got his revenge um, from a kayfabe standpoint, but also maybe from a political standpoint because the giant was left. Um, to me, I felt like the giant had lost a lot of steam uh, during this. Uh, just, oh, I'm not going to go as far as to say it was a burial, but but it was close to it, I would say. What did you think, sir, about that, the giant? Um, I don't know because... It took, it took Hogan ran, running his head into the cage like what felt like twenty times, and then it wasn't just one of Hogan's leg drops; it was three leg drops. Which I mean, Hogan won all his world titles with that move, and so on. And even then, the giant got up. So I suppose if you're really getting nitpicky and splitting hairs, potentially he looked relatively strong from that standpoint. I mean, what happens after the match? We get Kevin Sullivan coming into the into the cage with a chair. The Dungeon of Doom all arrive. Uh, everyone's brawling away, trying to get at Hogan. And the Giant walks away. You know, and he's leaving the Dungeon of Doom behind and he's off. He's, he's had enough this evening. So I still think there's a bit of intrigue there because he's walked away from the Dungeon of Doom. What's going on there? So that's going to be interesting to see where the giant goes from that aspect. And also with regards to actually just losing the match, he's a massive fella falling. What from, from a height of maybe eight foot. That's going to, yeah, that, that's going to, that was... that's going to hurt after three leg drops. So I, I don't know, Danny, really. I can see your point that that would be the, the visual of the pay-per-view. 
um, would be the giant falling the, all that way and that sound that it made as well. That's the, something that the fans in attendance would mm. remember. They'll say, oh, yeah, that pay-per-view where the, that big guy fell and that made that big sound, especially with the WCW rings as well. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, okay. So, I mean, one aspect we do need to cover quickly with regards to the end of the pay-per-view. We had a mention of a surprise from the Dungeon of Doom. Now, at this stage, I'm I'm thinking Hogan's beaten the Giant because that was the only real outcome you were going to get. Hogan going on last, that was kind of it, wasn't it? There's not much left of the Dungeon of Doom. Hogan's kind of picked them off bit by bit. They still need Hogan to be working with big monster bad guys. Who can the Dungeon of Doom produce? And we have the debut, I guess, or, or to us anyway, our first sighting of Loch Ness coming out on WCW television. The whole of the Dungeon of Doom holds Loch Ness back from going in to face Hogan. He's a massive monster of a man. Uh, it's very, very interesting from from my standpoint as, as a wrestling fan because of knowing who Loch Ness previously was. Are you aware of who Loch Ness is? I have a brief idea. Is that um, somebody from World of Spawn? That's right, yes. This is Giant Haystacks. So he yeah. was the, predominantly the the main, I suppose, uh, competitor against Big Daddy in the old World of Sport, English, British, sorry, wrestling scene of the 70s and 80s and so on. Now, at this point in his life, he's 50 years of age. So are they really struggling that badly, WCW? I don't think they are. I think they've still got quite a bit going on for them. But again, it's a very interesting dynamic. It's another big, effectively monster bad guy for Hogan to try and overcome. So they're revisiting that format once again, even though in certain areas it feels overdone or the fans are tired of it. But I think it's a really interesting dynamic because it is someone that Hogan hasn't come across before. Yeah, um, and I've learned a lot about John Haystacks from the brilliant um, UTT Rob, who's done a few podcasts on him. And yes. um, if anything's to believe by those, um, it was like, he is one of the biggest wrestling stars ever. And here he is coming in to face, presumably, another, one of the other biggest stars. This this is exciting, Si. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to burst your bubble a little bit because it doesn't it doesn't last long. Uh, not long after WCW bought Loch Ness or, or Haystacks in, um, he was found to be uh, quite poorly. Um, and uh, I believe it was cancer. And he went back to the UK. And ultimately, I mean, we're here now in February of 96 and he passed away trail end of 98, I believe. So he's probably only another two years or so of this world at this point. So that's a big shame. That's a big yeah. shame. I mean, the guy was six foot 10, maybe. And he must yeah. have been bloody, yeah, it must have been 500 pounds, 550 pounds, maybe more. When you look at him with a comparison of Yokozuna, who was billed at being 550, 560, I mean, straight on that basis, he must be, he must be 560, 570, maybe even more. So that's a huge fella for Hogan to essentially pick up and body slam. Could, could be really, really interesting if it, you know, comes to happen, which I'm, I'm not sure it actually does, but we'll find out in the coming weeks. But really interesting for me seeing seeing giant haystacks on WCW TV there. And I, I second your, 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 your mention there of UTT podcast with UTT Rob and Dan Griffin. Everyone should go and check it out. You can find them on, on Twitter at UTT podcast. And 
uh, all good podcast platforms as well spotify apple everywhere like that just give them a search give it a listen it's not only entertaining and it's not only you know a, a fun listen and makes you laugh it's also from a wrestling fan standpoint it, it's educational i learn things from listening to that show you know things Same. i never yeah things i never knew before which is from my standpoint as a grumpy old bastard from gloucester i don't think there was much more i could learn quite arrogantly on my part but yeah rob and dan do a fantastic job so go and definitely go and check that one out there danny that brings us to the end of the pay-per-view oh we've got one more thing sir okay the absolute burial of the dungeon of doom by hulk hogan who Ah. takes out the entire faction Mm. yeah i mean obviously Loch Ness wasn't involved and the giant wasn't involved, but it wasn't the complete faction, but it was the majority of them. Yeah. So, hmm. I didn't um, like I, it. No, if only, if only the dungeon of doom could, you know, recruit a few new members and get Hogan in a cage and they can all go at him at the same time. Somehow. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to wait and see what happens. Oh dear. Um, <laughs> oh, I suppose now we just need to very quickly look at our woos and our brothers for this pay per view. Danny, my friend. Woo! Brother, 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 brothers, brother. Woo! Brother. Do you want to go first or second? And do you want to be positive or negative first? I'll go first this week, Si. And uh, I think I'm going to follow in your footsteps and take the negative first. You crack on, bud. Okay, it was definitely that ending because Hulk Hogan, I think there was like seven people at least out there of Dungeon of Doom and he had just wrestled in a steel cage match. He was injured and he still managed to attack, to take out every single member and it was like, this is peak Hulk Hogan burial um, of the Dungeon of Doom. I, I just wasn't a fan. I get um, all of them holding uh, Loch Ness back but it was like they weren't that saved, but like every single one of them was destroyed, even with Hulk Hogan. <laughs> and Hulk Hogan did use some uh, headshots with the chair as well. That was quite mm-hmm. hard to watch. But yeah, that would be my um, old brother this week. What about you, sir? Uh, on that note, I can I can kind of, I don't agree with it, destroying a whole faction on your own. I don't agree with it at all. Don't get me wrong. But the whole adage of Hogan must pose and you send the fans home happy. I get that side of things perhaps it could have been done i agree with where you're coming from but i can understand maybe what they were trying to achieve with hogan being stood victorious to the last thing on screen and and so on um my oh brother this week is quite simply the conan match it was just dog dirt it was awful no i totally see totally agree with that mate and as far as woo this week um it has to be a lot for me but the main one has to be liz Elizabeth's heel turn because I never saw it coming. I didn't know she was ever a heel in her career, and I was quite shocked when she did make the turn because I thought, yeah, a woman actually looks like a heel and it doesn't really have baby face facials, but Liz does, and I'm excited to see where they take her as a heel now for the rest of um, our show. So, so um, yeah, that would be my woo. How about yours, mate? Uh, yeah, I mean, before we get, before we grab mine. The, the whole Elizabeth Hilton thing, I think was really well done. And the fact that you've not watched a lot of WCW in the past and you didn't see that coming is to me, 
the best part of this podcast. And that's why I love recording this show with you, getting your reactions to this sort of thing. And not obviously getting your insight and your own wrestling knowledge on something that's 25, 30 years old as well. But little moments like that where you're like, I didn't see that coming. I get a massive kick out of that. I love it. So that's great. (laughs) And my woo um, is Lex Luger. The guy is just absolute gold at the moment. He's six foot, whatever he is, 270. Looks like he's carved out of granite, but he's an absolute chicken shit. He's, that's his best mate to all his fighting for him. It, uh, it's just such a fascinating character at the moment because you don't know what's going to happen next, but you want to watch and see what's going to happen next. And I've been saying that for weeks with the whole odd couple dynamic with Sting. But this is the highest point we have had so far with regards to Luger performing in that way. So to me, my woo this week, my plus point, my positive is Lex Luger and his performance across the matches he was involved in. That's fantastic, mate. And that leads to more excitement in the next couple of weeks, doesn't it? I mean, what what will happen? That's what we've got to ask ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. And it keeps us coming back for more. Hit, miss or middling then, Danny? What are you thinking, my friend? I'm going with hit this week. Um, there was a lot of good matches on this. Uh, very few points I didn't like. So, yeah, I would go with hit this week. How about yourself, mate? It, it, it just misses out on the hit for me. It's a very, very high middle, if that's possible. Um, <laughs> the Luger stuff was superb, as I said. The Hogan match was probably a little bit better than I anticipated, but it still wasn't a great watch. Flair, Savage, I enjoyed. The Elizabeth Hill turn, I enjoyed. But there was just a couple of things that I was just like, oh, come on. But I, I can't skip it because I'm reviewing it for the show. But then they're also good. But as again, I mentioned Luger. And so I got a kick out of seeing the giant haystacks as well, to be fair. So it's the Conan match especially drags it down for me. So it's not quite a hit, but a very, very top end of, of, of middle territory for me. Bird. Brilliant, man. Okay. So there we go. Apparently on Nitro, as we're told, we get, we're going to get uh, Hogan versus Arn Anderson this week. So that's something to look forward to. Oh, wow. I must have missed that part. <laughs> yeah going to be interesting of course we're going to get the fallout of all the liz stuff so no doubt we're going to get rambling promos from savage and hogan as well but it's okay we're going to see arn anderson so we can always balance out with a good bit of arn a good bit of the enforcer oh, of course mate <laughs> uh, danny do you want to let everybody know whereabouts they can find you and all the awesome shows you're involved in my friend Yep, you can find me on Twitter at Scottish Juggalo. You can hear me on One Man's Meat podcast with the great Chris Bellis. You can hear me um, here next week with the great Sire Power. We'll be talking more WSW. And now you can hear me with a new show with um, the great Ty Peters where, called Back When, where we'll be talking about past shows, past uh, albums, past uh, movies and things like that, anything in the past since we both love that. And, um, yeah, that's where you can hear me and see me. Um, yeah. Thank you, sir. Yeah, great stuff. I mean, back when with Tyler and yourself, episode one's out available now on the main SJP uh, wrestling, sorry, main SJP world media feed and also on the, the, the back when feed of its own. Episode two will be coming out shortly. It's going to be between monthly to fortnightly, depending on how we find the time and so on. Uh, I loved the show. I love the dynamic of you and Tyler looking back on SummerSlam 88. I appreciate that you're going to be looking at movies and music and sporting events and wrestling and, and all sorts of stuff back when it just takes you. So that it is a really, really good show. 
you can find me online at SJP Words, but more importantly, I guess nowadays is the network itself, which is at SJP World Media, and that's where you'll find all the shows that are on the network. And there's there, there is quite a list. There is quite a list. We have people looking at modern day WWE for us with regards to uh, regularly scheduled hostilities from the states. Our good friends Chuck. Josh and Yvonne there. We have Mr. Benny Mac and In the Corner reviewing Raw and SmackDown for you every single week. And I say every single week, actually going to two shows a week now. So you'll get a Raw review and a SmackDown review coming at you as soon as possible, as soon as the show finishes, getting it recorded and getting it out there. A bit of sci-fi as well. The Doctor Who pod is available via SJP World Media. The Waiting Room, there are discussions at the moment about that returning very, very soon as well. Power Palace, where me and my wife I, I want to say have a conversation, but it basically ends up with my wife just pointing out how much of a moron I am, to be fair. Uh, and, and I don't mind it so much because she's right. And <laughs> coming very soon as well, we have NXT, The Rise and Fall, with Joshua Goodwin and myself looking at NXT, the black and gold era, show by show there. Chain Wrestling, live on a Monday night as well. So much going on at SJP World Media. Uh, merchandise as well, I should comment on. Just all the shows have T-shirts, mugs, hoodies, baseball tops, um, long-sleeved shirts, sweatshirts, all sorts of stuff, stickers. You can get anything you want. August the 24th, there is a sale coming. New tops are going to be added to our sales page. The description is the link is going to be in the show description on, on here. New tops will be added for a lot of the shows, new designs and so on. A sale, August 24th through to August 28th, provided by our T-shirt supplier. All plain, ordinary, standard T-shirts are reduced down to £14, or maybe slight differences there, depending on their original price. Or everything else, 35% off. Well worth it. Well worth getting yourself a few bargains there. Some of the shirts will come in less, some of the shirts come in more, but there's a sale on, 35% to the majority of stuff, and uh, standard tees, slightly different pricing being lowered there as well. So go and check that out. But you can find this show, most importantly, on Facebook and Twitter, at Nitro underscore Nights. So yeah, go and check us all a follow. Let us know what you think. Let us Give us as much feedback as possible as to what's going on. We love the feedback we're getting already. I still can't believe people are sitting through freaking dungeon of doing matches to be able to listen to our podcast and have conversations with us danny it's amazing it is i'm very thankful for it yes i'm me i'm me uh danny i will see you next week my friend for another episode of nitro and a little bit of arn anderson goodness can't wait can't wait and to everyone else as always thank you for listening <laughs>